Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, I'm talking to Emma Copley Eisenberg, the author of The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia, which is out now in paperback from Hachette. You can find a complete transcript of our conversation over on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Hello there, friends. Welcome back. And today I'm very excited to talk about a Appalachian book from a non-Appalachian writer, which I am very excited uh, to share our conversation with you today. But first, I wanted to recommend an Appalachian project that I just have to tell you about, and that is the project Black in Appalachia looks at Black history and culture in the region. And they have their own podcast, which I cannot recommend enough. They are the episodes that I save for special occasions because I treasure them so much. Their first season is over. I think I'm going to re-listen to them. The podcast is hosted by two women, Nkeshi Alamine and Angela Dennis, and they do a fantastic job of taking a deep dive into Black history and culture in the region, and they tackle so many different topics, and I just love each and every episode that they have put out. The episode I'm going to recommend to you today is the episode where they interview Disha Filial, the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, which is out from West Virginia University Press. That was my favorite book in 2020. I think I can say that now without uh, being afraid of spoiling anything. Uh, I adore that book. Would recommend the podcast, the interview. It's amazing. I will link it in the show notes. So please go check it out. So I recorded this episode uh, back in December with Emma, and we had a great time talking about her experience uh, being from New York City and going to work for this nonprofit in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, which is in Southern West Virginia. So whenever I pick up a book about Appalachia that's not written by an Appalachian person, I hold my breath because nine times out of 10, they really miss the mark and miss a true understanding of Appalachian culture and whatever region of Appalachia they happen to be in. But Emma Copley Eisenberg does a great job with this book. And I find myself recommending this to people outside of the region saying, hey, this is a great introduction. Read it, learn more about West Virginia in particular and you will begin to understand the region. It's sort of like a gateway into other books about Appalachia, which is something that we talk about in the interview. And so I really love the paperback edition that's just come out. It has a photograph by Roger May, who is known as Walk Your Camera on Instagram. I will link his Instagram down below. And he does a lot of photography projects in Appalachia, particularly West Virginia. And so this book is just... uh, It's so fascinating. It's so many things all in one. So before I jump into the conversation with Emma, here's a little bit about her. Emma Copley Eisenberg's fiction and nonfiction has appeared in McSweeney's, The New York Times, Ranta, The Virginia Quarterly Review, Tin House, Guernica, The New Republic, The Washington Post Magazine, Esquire, and others. She is the author of The Third Rainbow Girl, 
The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia, a New York Times Notable Book of 2020, and a novel and a story collection forthcoming from Hogarth Penguin Random House. Very excited about those. And she lives in Philadelphia, where she directs Blue Stoop, a hub for the literary arts. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Emma Copley Eisenberg. Well, uh, welcome, Emma, to the podcast. I'm so excited to finally have you on. I'm thrilled to be here. This is the highlight um, of this whole process. I'm <laughs> such a fan of your account and your um, thoughts and all the things. So thanks. Yeah, I we've been chatting on Instagram for a while, and I've been like trying to bide my time until your paperback release to ask you on. Because <laughs> I feel like I missed the train the first time around. I was like, I'll get it, I'll get it this time. And so I'm very excited to chat with you about the third Rainbow Girl. And uh, I read it last year around the time that it came out um, mm-hmm. because a friend at. I guess apparently the very last book expo um, brought me the arc and was like, Kendra, you need this. And he just like handed it to me and I was like, okay, this is, this is what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I'm always, I'm always hesitant when someone who's not from the region hands me a book and I'm like, what journey are we about to go on? Like, is there going to be snake handling? Because usually there's snake handling. <laughs> um, but your book does not have snake handling, and I was very pleased about that. Perfect. Thank you so much. So yeah. um, this book is about Appalachia, specifically Pocahontas County in West Virginia. Um, and But you're not from the region. And so I wanted to start this conversation for our listeners, like, why... And how, I guess, you ended up in West Virginia and um, making your home there for a long time. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say thanks for giving the book a chance. Even though I'm not from the region, I understand that that's a real real thing. And I would understand if folks were like, you know what, not right now, because there are so many amazing, like, own voices, Appalachian writers putting out amazing books right now. So thanks for, yeah, taking a chance, giving them some time. I think I... I think one thing that's really surprised me about the book, and then I promise I will circle back to the (laughs) um, most important question, um, is that there's like such a variety of ways to be Appalachian, right? And Mm -hmm. such a huge like Appalachian diaspora and people that have left and or continue to leave and return and leave and return and leave and return or have family from the region, but aren't from there themselves. And, and that like there, it was really interesting. The um, responses people have been like, you're not from there and also have this connection to it. And I, that speaks to me and I was like, Oh, that's so cool. So I feel like there's a sense of like, it's a very different narrative than saying I'm from the region and and I have important insight about it. Um, but it's a narrative that I think people also want to talk about in a weird way. So, um, yeah, so I, uh, went to a little college and, um, outside of Philly, which is only important because that school had a, partnership with this really cool nonprofit that was local to Pocahontas County, West Virginia, that worked with young women and girls in three southeastern West Virginian counties. And um, I basically, yeah, I was, I went there as a summer intern. Um, The program at my college has like a little bit of a flawed framing. It's basically like, we will fund you to do social justice internships um, in the U.S., 
similar to the way that they would think about sort of like doing good overseas. It sort of continues mm-hmm. the logic of like the um, domestic peace corps, like my college kind of suffered from that logic as well, but that is how I got there. And so I stayed the summer of 2007, I think. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I graduated right. Um, like Obama was elected, graduated right into that recession, um, that spring. And, um, yeah, I was just like having a big existential meltdown of like, how does one exist in the world and, um, in an ethical way? And do I want to go into the nonprofit industrial complex? There aren't really any jobs, um, anywhere else. And, uh, yeah. And I just, I got a call from this um, place that I had felt really, um, that, that summer that I spent there was really disorienting and really, um, important to me. And I basically spent the rest of my college time writing about it and processing it. And so they were like, you know, if you, if you'd like to come back, we'd love to have you. And I was like, yeah, I, I felt, you know, I think there's a sense of like, you go, um, and have an experience and meet people and then you leave, but you have a sense of like, this isn't over yet. And I think I had a sense of like, this isn't, over. Like I had more to, to learn and more to potentially to give. Um, so I moved to Pocahontas County in the summer of 2009 and lived there until the winter of 2011 and worked at, um, this nonprofit for most of that time. Um, and then, um, lived there just like as a person for uh, a time after my, um, service term came to a close. So technically I was a member of AmeriCorps, which is also known as the Domestic Peace Corps, problematically. So, <laughs> um, yeah. I find your experience moving there so interesting because I've, I've never heard of anyone having this kind of journey and just trying to understand the region at its core. So what was it, what was it like for you, like arriving into West Virginia and what were some of the first challenges of wrapping your mind, what life might be like there since it was considerably different than what you had experienced before? Yeah. I mean, I'm like 100% a New York kid, New York city kid. Um, and like, particularly this kind of ideological butting up against of like New York city and West Virginia, I feel like it's something that um, both people in my life in New York and people in my life then in Pocahontas County, like took a lot of note. Like I literally had a car that had New York plates on it, which is like not what you want to have. So yeah, I mean, I think I immediately was really lucky because the organization I was a part of starting in that internship summer, but also later while I was working there, it was very important to them that I understand. Yeah. I think be at least, basically competent in the values that were important to their organization. And they also gave me a really amazing, I still have like the binder that I drew upon a lot for them, the book of texts that were important to them. Um, Appalachian history texts, poets, Afro-Latin poets, Nikki Giovanni. Um, yeah, like they just kind of gave me an education and was kind of like, you need to know these things. And I was like, okay, yeah, like I do. And I'm like, give it to me. I'm ready. And so I, I read a lot and learned a lot. I think I was like grappling with a lot of big questions, which I try to introduce into the book um, in a way that makes sense of just like, I, I was very much coming from like an academic, it's not a word, academicized <laughs> perhaps space of like, don't come into a place whose culture you don't know much about and like tell folks what you think and like what you think they should be doing. I was just like grappling with all these questions of like, what of myself can I genuinely bring 
um, especially coming from a positionality that is so historically shitty and bad as a outside presence in Appalachia, specifically like an outside like New York City urban presence, because there's such, as you know, like this long history of folks coming in and telling people what to do and creating power dynamics that are harmful to communities. So I, I just tried to tread extremely, extremely lightly, I think, as I talk about in over the course of the book, I think that became also problematic in its own way. So I think I was always kind of trying to juggle like being um, extremely sensitive to listening and picking up what folks like actually needed and wanted um, in my capacity as a person who was doing work in the community. And then also like being just a person who was trying to form real connections and friendships in this kind of web of power dynamics too, where I knew I wasn't from there. I knew I was technically now part of the federal government as an employee of AmeriCorps. And then also just as a lost 21 year olds, like trying to figure out my like everybody else. Um, so it was, it was, it was a web and I think I didn't always navigate it well. Um, and I hope that's what comes through in the book is like me trying to expose all the ways that those webs of identities and um, travel and power sort of came together in a complicated stew of stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm, I really appreciate the way that like in the book, you can tell that you've done a lot of research as far as just trying to understand the region. And I have seen so many people not from the region read the book and actually understand Appalachia better from it. Was that difficult to write in like with your editor and with, you know, some of the feedback that you got while you were writing this book? Was it difficult because other people didn't get what you were trying to do because they were never been there? What was that process like? Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that. That's really generous. I mean, I, I think the question of audience was a big question for me because I didn't want to be writing out, like, you know, towards people who are not in the region um, exclusively. But at the same point, I knew that I was going to be contending with a lot of those readers and people who would have a lot of harsh and offensive and incorrect assumptions about the place. So I felt like I was a little bit trying to do like a juggling act with my editor and with myself of, um, like walking the line between writing to people that I knew and that would to find the book useful in the County. And then also outside it to people who might be genuinely interested or hungry to try to understand, um, the place better. So Again, I don't always know that it was a perfect solution, but um, I think my editor definitely played the role of, like, didn't know, didn't know anything <laughs> about West Virginia. If, like, love, Paul, like, if you're listening to this, like, you're an amazing editor, and I think we'd both agree that, like, you've never been to West Virginia, and that's okay. And um, so I think he definitely played that role for me and would be like, I don't understand this, or, um, you know, what do you mean by that? Or, like, would kind of bring some of like the, you know, California sort of coastal, um, questions and pushing on places that felt, um, either like too squishy or too inside, um, baseball or, um, like relying on history, uh, relying on the idea that people knew history in context that they may not have known. Um, and then I also had several, uh, local readers, um, people that were, um, friends of mine who lived in the region, um, and then several 
uh, writers who identify more broadly as Appalachian, including Elizabeth Cat, read an early draft of this book, which was very kind. Folks being like, okay, here, like trying to get a sense of like what people would get and what they would find interesting from a broad variety of backgrounds. So it was definitely always a a balancing act. And I, I tried to put it in the beginning of the book that like, I hope among other audiences that the, that the book speaks to people in Pocahontas County, but I can't, um, of course speak to like the experience of a Pocahontas County person reading this, nor being like a West Virginian more broadly reading it. But I have heard from a lot of, um, West Virginia readers more broadly, just being like, I appreciate that, um, this context is in there, that it's not just like assumed that people will know the history of West Virginia as a state or, um, like I felt like those things are really important to include, to understand why this crime part of it, why this case went so wrong and why it mattered because otherwise it's like, it's just another murder book. And that was like, never my, my intention. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really interesting talking to other people who aren't from the region uh, and when they've read this book and they're like, oh, I learned so much about West Virginia. Like I had no idea that West Virginia existed because it left the <laughs> Confederacy. And so like, for example, I'm wearing my like better South or, you know, better yeah. Southerner like t-shirt and West Virginia is, is, is on here. And I'm like, there are a lot of West Virginians that would be very angry to see, like, because it's such a divided state and that fundamentally is such a key part. And you were in the more Southern part of it. Totally. I spent a lot of time in Beckley, but one of the first, yeah, I worked a job there one summer and first thing they did was take all of us to the honey in the rock outdoor theater play about how West Virginia became a state and it was basically like union propaganda in <laughs> in the 21st century. I was like, this is hilarious. I don't know what to do with this, but that's fine. <laughs> but I feel like so much part of it, right, is that like that story and people wrestling with that history is like still so active. Like that's what I, you know, there's no real good solution. Like you said, it's so divided. And so I just tried to like put it all in and be like, well, some people think it is Southern and, and have Confederate flags sometimes. And some people are like, that's super offensive. And I absolutely do not identify with any Southern identity. And like, I think especially what I find so fascinating is Pocahontas County is like literally right on the border. Like it's a, it's a border state, it's a border County within a border state, which just makes it like so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up on the Ohio river, I definitely felt that a lot. There was a underground railroad station in Portsmouth (laughs) where I grew up. And so it's now, it's not like a little house museum. You can go in and. So that's something that they did a lot of reenactments in Portsmouth for whatever reason. It was always like usually the Revolutionary War kind of situation, praises be. But like, you know, it's just these weird, quirky things about the culture that expresses the confusion or conflict. And I think one of the key things to understanding the region is understanding these nuances in there. And I feel like you went in with, I don't know, so let me find out in that base approach and perspective really gave your book this honesty and authenticity of I'm not going to be perfect, but I am trying to understand it as best that I can. And so here are the things that I have learned. And I really appreciated that perspective because, you know, I've read so many things that were well-intentioned, but went very wrong, but your book really just stuck this line of that throughout the book. Plus the I consider this book kind of like three different things together, like your memoir, true crime, and this history part. And so I feel like that helped the other two parts like work mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. give that context, which was 
I don't know how honestly that you wove this book together because like you would, <laughs> you would think like all these different things might not work, but they very much do. And that's one of the things I love about it. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge compliment. I feel like again, yes, it's not perfect. And many things have come forth like from readers from the book, like with more questions and like, now I feel like there needs to be like a whole companion volume to like all of the other like structural layers that like I didn't navigate as well as I wanted to, or like things that people wanted to like put in response to or in conversation with. Um, but I really loved, um, Kathy Park Hung's book, which I know you love too. And, uh, she quotes a scholar in her book talking about, um, like what to do when you're writing from, um, you're writing about an identity that you're not, you don't occupy. And I, I think the term that the scholar she quotes is, is writing alongside, like we will not be writing from the center of an identity, but we can write alongside it and be in conversation with, um, those voices. And I feel like that was, I wish I'd had that term then, like when I was writing the book, but I feel like that's the most helpful, like articulation of what I was trying to do is like, again, like being not from a place, but, but loving it or being connected to it is its own story. It's a different story than being from there. Um, and writing alongside is I think a rich and viable position too, as long as you don't creep into trying to write from. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty perfect term. It's so great. I know. Thank you so much, Kathy Parkong. <laughs> Another gem from Kathy Parkong. Like I know, I know. <laughs> but yeah, the threads were weird and we did reorganize it like one million times. And that is one glorious thing about having a great editor is they can really help you like create a macro um, structure. Cause I had all these like convoluted ideas. Like I was like, it's going to be a bluegrass band. It's going to be five parts. It's going to be a, this thing. And then the, the A part and then the B part. And he was just like, mm, no. <laughs> let's just figure out like what the book is and what it wants to be. And I was like, right, 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 right. right. So yeah. So he came, the book has seven parts and I'm sort of central to two of them. And then five of them are, um, more exterior facing. So that's like the compromise we came to. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you started processing your first visit or, or time at Pocahontas County by writing. And so I'm assuming that kind of continued when you moved there. When did you know that this was a book and not like an essay or a think piece or anything like that? Totally. I mean, I processed this um, that summer, like you said, at first by short stories. And I always thought I was going to write fiction like exclusively. And I didn't really know I was going to write fiction about this topic until I, I did do some, like, I just wrote some like very bad, um, stories, like short fiction about my time in this place. So a little bit during, and then a little bit after, but I was always just like, there, this is not working. Like there's not, this is not good. Um, so I kind of like knew I was going to put those aside and never show them to anybody. But then I was getting a degree in fiction in Charlottesville and yeah, those, those pieces were not working. Other stuff I was writing was not really working. And then, yeah, it was just like, I don't know if, if you're a Buffy fan, but for Buffy fans out there, like it just really felt like living in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2014, 2015 was like the hell mouth just like opened. And it was like this, uh, UVA student, Hannah Graham was like went missing and was like murdered. And there was still this old unsolved case of Sage Smith, this black trans teenager who like, no, like police had like drastically mishandled and no one was like looking for it. And it was very bad, but it was felt everywhere. And then the UVA, a rape on campus, Rolling Stone article came out and it was like, 
And then, you know, all the stuff that would become the like alt-right, like March in 2017 was like already being felt in 2014. And all these like grassroots activists were like, you got to do something about this. And the city of Charlottesville was like, and I was like, <laughs> they're like, mm, we don't know. And so it was just like all these, it felt like the sort of culture wars of the world had all converged on Charlottesville that winter. And I was just like in this class trying to write like nice fiction. And I just like, didn't, I couldn't do it. I was just like, this is absurd. Like I, um, like all my fiction cohorts were just like, I will go home and like close the door. And I was like, I can't do it. So I think I just like um, realized that I wanted to write nonfiction at, at that point in some way, or be part of a, com- a broader conversation that was going on about the South and Appalachia and gender and class and race and sexual violence. And I just started like, you know, lying awake at night and, and then just the, um, the, the murders and looking at my journals and the murders just came back in terms of me having heard the story about these two women who had died um, or had been killed in Pocahontas County. And then I just Googled it and it was written about so poorly with so many of the stereotypes and offensive, really nasty, violent language written about the, this place that I had known pretty well and cared about. And it, it just felt like at that point when I started, I didn't really, I, as you say, I did think it was going to be maybe an essay or a magazine piece. And it wasn't until I think I wrote like a whole bunch of words, almost a full draft, like two years later, maybe 2017 that I really felt like I was writing a book. So I was kind of in denial about it for a while. You know, you like, <laughs> you like dip a toe in and you're like, it's, I don't know. And then you let, you're like, yeah, it's just it's a long magazine piece. Like it's just a bit long. And then it, it just kept growing. So and it was about two years of research. I can't even imagine. And I found the true crime portions of the book just really interesting because you also examined how the the media like looked at that and just the context of people's thoughts and opinions about who did you know murder these girls and who didn't and just that whole process and then you pull that to the forward and and I mean this isn't a spoiler because it's the title but when you when you found that there was a third rainbow girl it was like this whole thing and then there's like those pauses for your memoir portions and different things. And I felt that really added to the suspense because I felt like you were, I don't know, like this, this Indiana Jones, but <laughs> searching for like the, the, uh, for more information about these two girls. And I felt like it was like this whole journey and I couldn't stop reading it. Then you go on Goodreads and people don't know what the book is and they get frustrated about that. I'm like, guys, chill. <laughs> It's so bad. I mean, I, everyone is like, don't read Goodreads. And I feel like I was doing a really good job of not reading it. But then I think we talked about this, but like, and someone messaged me and it was like, Hey, like, you know, you're getting killed on Goodreads. Right. And I was like, Oh, you know, it can't be that bad. And then I looked and I was like, Oh, wow, it's really bad. <laughs> and I feel like it, it's so fascinating because we can have like a whole other chat about like true crime as a marketing genre. And I'm actually trying to develop a piece right now, looking into the history of true crime as a marketing genre. And when did we start to understand it in the contemporary terms that we do? But, um, yeah, I just think that people have a very strong association of like the conventions of true crime and what they want out of it. And like you said, like there's no spoilers because literally my book opens with like just a, a list of all the true things that I could came to know about, um, the case and the place and myself. Cause 
so much of the book is about like multiple and competing stories and competing truths. And, um, it just seemed so hard to sort through. And that list was actually, that was one of the last things I wrote before we sold the book. Um, I was like, I don't know what this book is. I don't know what this book is. And then I, my agent was like, just sit down and like make a list of just like, what are the core truths about this project? And I did. And, um, then we sold it because I knew what it was. And I, yeah, I just, when people are like, I'm so mad, like she like lays out all the like spoilers up front. And I was like, I understand like, and also like, I don't care really about (laughs) did it like, that's not the point. And so I, I think, I hope that it will find like its own weird audience and like you're such like the ideal reader. And I think I've gotten a lot of amazing messages from people who are interested in using violence or crimes as like windows to thinking about class and gender and, and our country. And there's so many amazing books that have come before mine in this tradition of, of much more expansive thinking about writing about violence and, or crime nonfiction, as we might call it. But I still think there's a strong white, there's a lot of like whiteness and like white supremacy, I think, mixed into true crime as a inflexible genre. Like there's a lot of like white ladies and white older gentlemen who feel a lot of feelings about the fact that I have a first person and that I um, give away the the exciting, um, I guess, to them, like content in the front and just the ways that violating those conventions, like make a lot of true crime fans really angry. And I, I think that's productive. It's genre trouble, which can be interesting, but it's just fast. It's a fascinating reaction. That's definitely been at the forefront of, in some ways, the, the reaction to the book. The sponsor of this episode is Audible. As many of you know, I am a huge audiobook fan. In fact, I mostly do my reading via my ears, and that makes Audible an important part of my reading life. As someone who has over a dozen audiobook apps on my phone, Audible's app is by far the easiest to use that I use in my everyday life. In fact, when I wake up, I head over to Audible, and with my subscription, which I have had for many years now, I can listen to summaries of the New York Times and the Washington Post, which give me a great way to start my day. Audible has also recently released a new subscription called Audible Plus, where you have access to a number of audiobooks in addition to your regularly scheduled credits that drop into your account every month. For me, I really love that Audible Plus includes authors like Banana Yoshimoto, especially since we are doing our international theme here on Reading Women this year. So if you are looking for more audiobooks in your life, Audible has given Reading Women a special discount code. So you can visit Audible at audible.com slash reading women or text reading women to 500 500 to start your free 30 day trial. That's visit audible.com slash reading women or text reading women to 500 500 to start your free 30 day trial. I appreciate it. And maybe it's because I'm sort of an agent of chaos and I don't think genre <laughs> exists really. Mm-hmm. And I that like, I'm like, these are just, I'll spare you the rant. You, you know the rant <laughs> because you've probably heard it from various people. But so I loved it. I loved how it leaned into that. And also I, I'd read Dead Girls um, by Alice Boland. Oh, and she wrote that, that essay about our fascination with dead women and how it was harmful in different ways and where it came from. And I feel like you definitely turned that on its head. And I really loved Amanda Nelson's review of your book because she just like 
dove into it and was like, what is wrong with all these reviewers? And I really appreciate her comments. I'll make sure to link that in the show notes for <laughs> listeners. But um, oh my goodness, I, reactions to the book are also, I think, part of the conversation now totally. because they've been yeah. so vocal, I guess. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I, I think it's productive. And like the fact that people are so angry means you're doing something interesting, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> And it's, and I do feel this is not a fully fledged thought. Again, I am hopeful it will get out into this new, um, essay I'm working on, but I just, I do really feel like there's something about straightness and whiteness that is embedded in like the traditional true crime vision. And like the fact that I'm like definitely white and also queer and like trying to be critical of like the, um, tradition like those traditional systems that shape true crime and make us enjoy it in like these very regimented ways like true crime is also historically extremely pro police and pro law enforcement and I think I try to trouble that a lot in the book and talk about the ways that even um you know small town um agents of law enforcement like despite good intentions like really became part of this like system of power that ruined the lives of like a lot of these guys, many of whom were like working class, like white dudes, you know? And yeah, I just, I feel like it's it, like behooves us, if you will, to, <laughs> to think about like why um, true crime is, exists in that, in that structure of, of whiteness and, and straightness and pro policeness. And like, I just think there's so many other books that are doing such cool work. Um, Maurice Chalmers is putting out an amazing book about the death penalty. Um, I feel like, of course, like Patrick Grattan Keefe's book, um, Becky Cooper's book about um, misogyny and the murder at Harvard. Like, there's just so many other books that, whatever you call them, I feel like are doing amazing stuff with um, unpacking crimes um, and these, like, bigger questions. I love that you're writing more. And you've had actually an incredible year. You had two big pieces come out in addition to the book, <laughs> uh, like what, I mean, what was that journey like? Like both of them seemed to like explode. And I was like, when the, I believe the second one was the fact checking one. And I was like, Does this woman sleep? Like, when, <laughs> when, how does she do all of this? Cause, um, both pieces were incredible. And I just saw the internet like explode when they like went live, I guess. Oh, thanks. I feel like 2020, in addition to all the things, I think it was just a year of a lot of things from the past, like blooming in the darkness in silence and like me toiling in the wee hours of like uncertainty in the morning, like came into the light in 2020 for better or worse. And I think, yeah, the third rainbow girl was just, was a lot of darkness. You know, I I dreamed about murder every night for like three years, like either being murdered or murdering probably. And like, I think that that's like worth talking about too, that like, you know, someone contacting me recently, like about writing a similar book. And I was just like, have a good therapist, therapy, therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, the queer Appalachia piece and the fact checking piece, like those were things that just started in my brain and that I'd been working on for many years, but, um, because of like capitalism and the industry, like you just never know when things are going to come out. So they all happen to come out within, um, a fairly like short time span. There was a moment where the queer Appalachia piece was supposed to come out the day before my book. And I was like, please don't do that to me (laughs) (laughs) because there's so much other difficult material with, um, queer Appalachia too. So I was like, yeah, space would, would be nice, which it turned out there, there was, but yes, I do 
love sleeping. <laughs> I plan to do more sleeping in 2021. Um, well, I did want to ask you about this process of this book and you wrote an entire piece about fact checking, which blew my mind. And so what was your process like for fact checking this book and what actually normally happens with nonfiction books mm. when they're about to go out into the world? Mm, I'm so glad you asked. Yes, this is my like personal um, axe to grind. <laughs> yeah. So what normally happens, as um, folks may or may not know, is that uh, you sign a contract as a nonfiction author that says, I promise that the book that I submit to you, the publisher, is totally true. <laughs> and you're like, sign here and the dotted line. You know, like we always promise that as nonfiction authors. The, the veracity or the truthfulness of the text is always the author's responsibility. So some authors take that more seriously than others. Um, some authors are doing their best in good faith, uh, but are limited by means and mostly money because um, double checking and, and professionally checking for facts is extremely expensive, as we know. So many authors sign that clause on the dotted line and do their best to fact check their own books. Um, if it's a memoir, if it's essays, like you just are doing your best, you're operating in good faith, you're maybe checking um, with friends or family members. Uh, and sometimes you get a legal read from your publisher if there's anything like potentially tricky or potentially libelous, etc. But that's good enough for most books. Um, even many nonfiction books like history books, politics, uh, are not fully fact-checked depending on if the author believes he or she can do it themselves, which I think is not true. But like, I think it's really impossible for a writer to fact check their own book because so much of what a fact checker does is kind of bringing a separate brain that doesn't live inside your brain and bringing, you know, organic questions about how your process works and all that. So some um, writers just try to do it themselves. Some writers will just keep like an exhaustive list of notes and, and just check as they go through the best they can. Um, and then they'll turn in the manuscript to their publisher. Their publisher will copy edit it again, maybe legal read it. But even sometimes like the biggest history or politics books are not professionally fact-checked, which is so strange because we have like the New Yorker and Harper's and the Atlantic that put all kinds of articles in a similar vein um, through just a super rigorous process. So sometimes like writers that are fact-checked at the New Yorker um, will then go on and write a book and their articles have been fact-checked, but their book is not, which is, it's very strange because again, like in our culture, we see books as like the more impressive and reliable, I think, version of articles, but the opposite is often true, which is very odd. So I knew all of this and I knew that if I wanted to have my book fact-checked to the standard that I would be used to having like a magazine or an internet publication fact-check, um, that I needed to hire one myself. So I, um, there's lots of different ways to do that. And I think that is even growing with, especially with like the nation Institute has like a directory of fact-checkers now, which is awesome. But, um, I was able to find one through basically friends and connections, but just like, as I tried to note in the piece, just the money aspect is really complicated because it depends on like the credentials of the fact checker. It depends on how much of your book you want them to check. Um, I didn't, um, have them invest as much time in the memoir elements, like, which is tricky in its own way. Uh, but they did check the whole book essentially. And I paid, uh, actually now I have to go check my notes about that. If you want for the show, I can get you the precise figure, <laughs> but, um, I paid a lot of money for the fact checker and, uh, most people will 
not necessarily have set aside that money from their advance. Um, maybe they can't afford it. Maybe you had a, your roof needed to be fixed that year. Like there's so many reasons why authors don't have like between eight and $16,000 sitting around, which is how much a good fact check costs. So I, I had saved that, set it aside and knew it would be needed. But again, like it shouldn't be, the system should not be that authors fund their own fact checkers, you know, from their pocket. Uh, and I try to go into this in the article too, that my fact checker was amazing and really, really competent and really independent, but it's just a bad system. I think anytime the author is in charge of also paying and hiring the fact checker, cause it's, it's a bad power dynamic. Like you don't want to be, um, telling your boss like that they're wrong all the time. Like authors get defensive about that. And so there really should be like a third party making sure that the fact checkers be, uh, paid fairly as well and that their interests are represented because it's really easy for young fact checkers to, um, get taken advantage of. And so I'm, I'm tried to be wary and, um, cognizant of like making sure my fact checker was paid a fair rate. But I think for younger fact checkers out there who often do this work, like on the side or in addition to, um, a newspaper job, like, I feel like it should really be a more respected skill and a more regulated marketplace so that um, fact checkers know how much to charge and are paid fairly and authors know how much they should set aside. But in the future, like my dream is that publishers will be um, hiring and paying fact checkers for the books that they publish. They really should. It's structurally like we need to be working in that direction is my hope. And it's starting to change a little bit. More imprints are um, hooking their reader, their writers up with fact checkers and paying them directly and like bravo to all of those who are doing it. Yeah, it makes me wonder like if all the nonfiction books I'm reading are sort of like Wikipedia, yes, like basically. what what is what is happening? And I always, you know, look in the back for notes now and like all of this stuff to see, but it's really disconcerting, especially considering, you know, so many people then cite these books or take them as fact and exactly. It's just really disconcerting. So I will make sure to link that article down in the show notes so people can go read it. It will blow your mind about nonfiction. And it now has me suspiciously eyeing all of my nonfiction books and like. I know. I know. I think it's like you can read in the back, as you said, like and see if the author thinks they're fact checker or they're, they should be credited um, in books that are fact check. But some like I, I read a opinion article that was like books that are fact check should get like some kind of a stamp that's like fact yes. or not. But of course, then there's also like st industry standards is a problem. Like to what standard are books being fact checked? There's no, because we have no regulatory um, like body that oversees fact checking, like quote unquote fact checking something can mean like a hundred different things, which is again, why I think there should be a more standardized system. But indeed it's a, it's a tricky web. Well, I really appreciate how you mentioned the different imprints that now do have fact-checking as part of their process. I shelve my books by imprint. Mm. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> I, can, I, I know these. These are fine. <laughs> that's, I think that's really fun. It'd be fun to do like a tour of your bookshelf with like, these are fact-checked and these are not. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciate you writing that article and putting that out there because a lot of people... Um, are just shocked to learn that because you just assume that they do. And the fact that they're not is just like obviously a huge problem. And I, you know, I used to work as an editor and I always said that I would never copy edit my own work and I would never like fact check whatever, because anytime, cause I would also be a book doctor. So I would rewrite stuff and 
whatever. And so I freelanced and they expected me to copy edit my own work. So I would always have to set aside like money for the stuff I would edit to be copy edited. And thankfully I knew friends who are copy edited. She actually, my friend actually is our um, transcript editor now, but like it's ridiculous. Like I shouldn't have have to like plan to take, I already, you already get paid so little. It's like you already, and then you have to like set aside thousands of dollars for this. Like, Exactly. Yeah. And I think it just speaks overall to like what projects are considered financially viable. And like for those projects that are already more on a shoestring budget, like those are the ones that then get added to service in terms of not being able to hire a fact checker. And that just shouldn't be the case. Like writing a reported nonfiction book is really expensive and it's out of a lot of people's reach, which I think we should talk about more. There are like getting to be better grants and better um, opportunities for support for deeply reported books, like in mid process. But um, so many times, yeah, you're just expected to, to create, to do all this reporting um, on money you supposedly have from, I don't know, some other job. And then you don't sell the book until much later. So I think overall, like reported nonfiction is a, is a field of, of great privilege often. And I think um, fact checking is definitely a part of, of the money conversation and needs to be because if you don't sell your book to a big imprint, um, how are you supposed to pay? Yeah, how are you supposed to pay for that? It's it's bizarre. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could talk for hours, but <laughs> I just saw we are a bit out of time. But before I let you go, I wanted to ask you uh, what what books would you recommend? Maybe it's something that you're reading now during the pandemic, or maybe something that you found very useful in your research. Really, whatever you would mm-hmm. like to recommend to our listeners. Ooh, such fun. Okay. I feel like I read recently, I actually have it right here. Um, I know it's the podcast, but I just want to make sure that I get the name right. Um, it's called The Tree and the Vine um, by Dola Dujong. She's, I believe, a Norwegian writer, um, like queer old book from like the 40s. And I feel like it is a really interesting study of like this kind of, um, between genre work. Like it's, it's clearly like influenced by real events and real feelings, but it's structured in this really beautiful, um, like elaborate fictional, um, infrastructure. And I think she just DGAF about genre basically. She was just like, (laughs) it was sort of before, um, auto fiction was a thing and just wrote it anyway. And it didn't have a ton of success while she was alive and is having this, um, this larger success now. And so I just, that's the last book that I read that I truly loved and like want to, um, what's the word like proselytize about. And then I think, <laughs> I think in, um, writing the third rainbow girl, uh, I mean, I think everyone should read Rachel Monroe's book, Savage Appetites, which I just think is genius and has just a lot to say again about a lot of the questions we were talking about in the episode about, um, these, the ways that like tropes of true crime intersect with, um, uh, whiteness and class and, um, misogyny and and the ways that like our society is is changing around true crime but still maintains this kind of like pro-police um trust in law enforcement kind of attitude and then something that i read during the pandemic that's just totally fun and lovely is um mega imagine there's a burning i just ate it up like tasty tasty ice cream um even though it was difficult and i find my brain is just really tired and 
overstimulated. Uh, and for whatever reason, that book like really cut through the noise and was just a delight to be with. I have a soft spot for editors who are also writers for obvious reasons. Totally. So I, I love that as well. And Samaya, who's our, one of our co-hosts, is a Muslim woman living in India. I love that book. And so talking about Samaya was just, just blew my mind and oh, it's so good. Sorry, I'm just I'm just fangirling so about like what I'm talking. No, about. I know, and yeah, and she's so nice too, and it's like, ugh, I know, and just like Mazel Tov <laughs> and um, congratulations to Mega, yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today and talking about the book. Uh, I hope everyone goes out and buys it. It's now out in paperback. It's a gorgeous new cover. Yes, photographer Roger May, amazing West Virginia photographer. Um, his photograph is on the cover of strange and delightful vines so it has the the facelift i think she really deserves (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for having me and that's our show i'd like to thank emma copley eisenberg for coming on the show to talk with me about her book the third rainbow girl the long life of double murder in appalachia which is out now in paperback from hachette Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester, with music by Mickey Saito with Isaac Green. You can find me, Kendra, at KD Winchester across social media, and you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.